Well, it's good to see everyone, and we certainly want to welcome our live stream audience that are watching, uh, people who watch from really just about anywhere, and uh, that's just a real cool uh, joy to know that the Word of God's going out from the room, not just in the room, but beyond the room. But it's always, always, always so good to see your faces. Thank you for being here this evening. Let me just go ahead and put one more plug shamelessly, and the live stream audience has to listen. There are same, some wonderful desserts over here. Sandra made a, pound, a, a lemon pound cake from her lemon tree. And my mother brought, what is it called, Mom? An apple cake. And, oh, there's two left. Okay, so three, three left, three left. So make sure you get what you, what you need, and, uh, and we'll be in good shape. It's just great to see all of you. I want to thank you for being here tonight. We're going to be in chapter 22 of 2 Kings. we got about four chapters left. We're, we're getting close to the end. And again, if you have any other ideas for books that you'd like us to, to study verse by verse, please throw those my way and uh, I'll, I'll consider them. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just about now at a point where I have to shut that down and start studying. Uh, so I, I, I won't go much longer waiting. But if you have anything... Tonight, feel free to share it with me. Um, as we get started this evening, we're going to start with prayer, as we always do, and thanking the Lord for our church, for our for Bureau Bible Fellowship. Do you realize that this uh, late July or mid-July, uh, early August in that area, we, that's, we started Bureau Bible five years ago. It'll be five years, our five-year anniversary so I don't know what we're going to do, but we need to do something special for that anniversary date, you know? Uh, I'm sure the, Deb and, and the team will work on that for us. Um, but it's just a wonderful thing to be part of God's church and part of Bureau Bible. I also, let me just say to you before we pray, because I want to include it in the prayer, that we always pray for the needs of people. That is so important. As elders, as staff, we're constantly praying. This, yeah, yesterday at staff meeting, uh, we were praying, uh, listing needs, and then praying. We do that every week. Our elders do that every month. One meeting is dedicated to nothing but prayer for, for the body. And, uh, and it's just a blessing to be in a church that sees the, the importance of prayer, the priority of prayer, the, the preeminence of prayer. But at the same time, um, we should pray for that God would open the right door for a property for us to own one day. And uh, I got to tell you, there is something wonderful about not, owner, not owning and just renting or leasing, uh, because if the, if the roof breaks down, guess what? You just make a phone call, <laughs> pass it on to the owner. But, uh, but I think that uh, we're always looking. The, we've got a future facility team that's always looking, and we're, we're always in talks with somebody. We're talking with someone right now. But um, it has to be the Lord's time, and... Uh, and when that right opportunity comes up, we're going to jump on it. And you'll hear all about it before we do that, obviously. But uh, we've, we've set it up in the bylaws that whenever the church purchases property or a facility, that the body would vote on that. It's not something that the elders would do on their own. So um, you'll, I'm hoping that sometime soon we'll be able to, to present something to you. But we don't have, there's no reason for me to say that tonight other than that I'm, I'm praying for that and hoping for that. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, tonight we come before you giving thanks because you have given us life. And I'm not talking about birth. We were born once, but now we've been born again. 
and that's through Jesus Christ, born of the Spirit, not just of the flesh. And if you've been born twice, you only die once. And I, I'm thankful, Lord. I, I pray that, uh, that we will live for eternity with you, that our, our future is bright. And so that just causes me to well up with appreciation and gratitude in my heart. It causes me to want to reach out and love you in worship. It causes me to want to open the Bible and study and learn of you and then take what I've learned and apply it to my life and then apply it to other people's lives, serving them. So Lord, tonight we just come as a gracious people, very thankful that you saved us. It was nothing we did on our part. It was certainly not our merit that brought us into salvation. It was solely the fact that we were lost sinners destined for hell, and Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our sin. And we are not forgiven tonight because we're good people. We're forgiven tonight because we absolutely needed your forgiveness, and you provided it. And we give you praise for that. Lord, uh, be with our church as we go forward. It's five years. What a blessing to know that we've been able to join you in your work. And we're looking for a long future. And Lord, we're praying that you would open the right doors at the right time for the right location for us to have a home. And we are thankful for places like the Church of Christ here that have opened their doors to us, who have been such a blessing to us. We're thankful for, the, for Storm Grove Middle School, how they've opened their doors to us, and how we've had opportunity to bless them back and to bless the students that are there, scholarship students with food and clothing and things that they need. And we're just thankful, Lord. So tonight as we study the Word, may we, may we press in, may we learn, may we grow, may we practice everything we're learning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we come to chapter 22, and this is Josiah. Josiah, a young man who becomes king. How old was Josiah when he became king? Anybody? Eight years old, and he becomes king. Wow. Now, that was a co-regency. He was a king along with his father Ammon. And then his father passes away and he takes over the throne. So that's always on the front side of, of these chapters when it starts with a new king. There's usually a period of time where He's in a co-regency before he becomes the sole king. And that's the case here. Um, before we get started, I, I want to kind of help us to understand what's happening in that part of the world at that time. Because it will really help us to understand what the things that are happening in this chapter. But also, I want us to know that when Josiah became king, the prophet of the day was Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah is on the scene. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah himself thought he was very much alone, that the people did not receive his message. And there's truth in that. They didn't. Israel had come through Manasseh, Ammon, who were wicked kings for most of their... Manasseh up until the very end when he repented. You studied him last week. And Amnon, 
another wicked king. And so Jeremiah was sent by God to bring a, a, a difficult word. And Jeremiah would go to Jerusalem, and he would stand at the gate of the city. And this is at the, in the early years of, of Josiah, when his father was still also reigning as king. And even after, Jos after Ammon died, Josiah took over and started to bring reform back to Jerusalem. And one of the first things he did was he, we're going to see tonight, he repaired the temple that had been torn down, not, not completely gone, but just was in disrepair because of Manasseh and because of Ammon. And as he's rebuilding, there is this outward, external revival that begins to take place. Here's what I mean by that. The people who have been following after other gods, worshiping at the high places, worshiping the Asherah pole and all these other ridiculous idols, they start going back to the temple. Why? Because the temple's been restored by Josiah, and it became a popular thing. It's like uh, when we lived in West Palm Beach years ago, and they built City Place down in an old district of downtown West Palm Beach. They took several blocks of houses, and they knocked them down, and they built a little mini city. And they brought in all of the, the, pine tree, the pine trees. The palm trees came from all over the world, from Egypt and from uh, the Middle East and other places. They brought in tile from Italy, and they did the whole thing. I mean, it was just incredible. And it was the popular place. I mean, you, you go there on a Friday night, forget it, man. Try to get a parking spot in the garage. And they had live bands and dancing, people out dancing. It was a lot of fun. That's the picture. Josiah is meaning spiritual reformation. He really does want to see revival. But the people have been so long, so gone from God, so far from God for so long that now they see the temple rebuilt. It's cool. It looks good. Hey, it's a hangout. Let's go. Let's see our friends. And we'll conduct our businesses, and we'll just have a fun time. And so God sends Jeremiah to the city, and he stands at the gate there. And he starts coming against the people for what they're doing because it's hypocrisy. It's fake. They're acting spiritual, but they're fakes. This was the call of God for Jeremiah. So no wonder Jeremiah was not popular. And In fact, take your Bible and turn to, I'll turn with you, turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's go there just for a short moment. Jeremiah 7. Here's, here's what's really cool about the Word of God. When you start connecting the dots, when you do Old Testament survey, it starts to come together. And you start, so when you're studying a chapter, you, you know how that chapter is referred to in other places in the Bible. You bring all of that knowledge together, and now you have a whole different picture than what you would have gotten had you just read the chapter alone. We've, we've done that throughout the book of First and Second Kings because of First and Second Chronicles which is more, this, this is a survey. Uh, Chronicles is more of a, a you know, an in-depth look. So we've, we've been able to do that. Well, Jeremiah, if you read early days in Jeremiah, guess what? It's all during the time that Josiah became king. So now we get another insight into what's happening in chapter 22 
of 2 Kings from Jeremiah chapter 7. Let me just read a little bit for you, okay? Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So stand at the gate of the temple. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who, who enter the gates to worship the Lord. See, they're coming for worship, supposedly. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. What words? Here they are. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. So here you have God saying to the people, you're acting right, you're going to temple, you're, it's cool, it's popular, it's the, it's the thing to do in your day. But there's all these wicked sins that you're committing. What I need you to do is clean up your act. Live on the inside what you're projecting on the outside. And if you do, then I'll let you dwell here. Then I'll let you come and enjoy my presence. Now, know this. God has already decided to level Jerusalem. He has already decided to level the temple. And you say, why would God do that? Because the people played a game with the temple. They saw that as just a, it's like playing church on Sunday. People go to church, but they're not changing on the inside. On Monday, they're still making bad deals with people in the business world. They're still ripping people off. They're doing, and God's like, I'm not going to tolerate that. And so he literally, the thing that they, the, this thing that they had rebuilt, repaired, that they saw as so cool, and God's like, you think it's cool? I'm going to wipe it out. And he did. Completely. Okay? So now let's go back to 2 Kings. So, so Jeremiah is the prophet. There seems to be reform happening. It, I believe certainly for Josiah the king, it's real. It's not fake. But many of the people were so caught up for so long in false idol worship, they're just adding God back into the mix. It's called a syncretistic approach. I, I got a little bit of this God. I got a little bit of this God. I got a little bit of this one. I got a lot of this one. And I put them all in the same pot and I stir it really well. And that's my, that's my cocktail of worship. It's a syncretistic approach, and it's, it's a stench in the nostril of the one true living God. So let's pick up Josiah, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or the left. What a refreshing thought to have a king that's following God. Hezekiah did not follow the Lord. Manasseh, well, Hezekiah did, and then he walked away from the Lord the last 15 years of his life. He didn't finish strong. Manasseh, wicked all of his days. And then at the very end, he repents. Because, why did he repent? Because God sent the Assyrian captains in. They strung him up on hooks, literally hooked him through his chest. 
through his breast, okay, and hauled him away. And that's when he repented. And then his son, Ammon, becomes king, and he's more wicked than, than uh, his father. I mean, the guy, they, they're all wicked. And then Ammon has a son, and his name is Josiah, and Josiah loves the Lord. Now try to figure all that out. Every family, this, does this not reflect your family? Some who love the Lord deeply, and man, they're just so packed, and others who walk away from the Lord never come back. They could care less. And pretty much every family has some of that. Well, but no different here. So you've got, you've got uh, Josiah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Fifteenth king of Judah. He's the fifteenth king of Judah. His reign began when he was eight. He reigned for 31 years. At the time of Josiah's reign, the geopolitical landscape had shifted into a state of flux. Let me explain that. Assyria, up to that point in time, had been the world empire. The Assyrians were the ones that God sent in to literally take captive the northern kingdom of Israel. So the Assyrians, that was the empire. And, but they lost their king. And in losing their king, they began to lose their grip on this expanded empire that they had built. And little by little, the, the Babylonians and the Persians began to assert themselves. Eventually, three years... Okay, so, so in 612, the Babylonians conquered the capital city of Assyria. You know what? What's the capital city of Assyria? Nineveh. Sound familiar? Jonah was sent by God to the Ninevites to preach revival. He didn't want to do it. Well, the city of Nineveh was captured, and just three years after that, the Assyrian Empire fell completely. Okay? So, but this is the, this is the period of time when Josiah is king. So you got one massive, powerful empire that's going down. You've got another that's coming up, the Babylonians. However, the Babylonians aren't strong enough or expanded, expansive enough to go far away to the west and deal with uh, Judah. So for a season of time, Judah is not going to be pressed by the Babylonians or the Assyrians. And to the south, you've got Egypt, but Egypt has not started going after the small nations to its north, and Judah, Jerusalem being one of them, one of the cities. So there, for a period of time, there's a, there's a, a, a flux, there's a transition going on in the geopolitical arena. This is the time, this is what's happening when Josiah comes into power. Okay? Verse 3, in the 18th year of King, King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azalea, son of Meshullam, the secretary to the house of the Lord. Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. So this is happening from the time he comes into kingdom after his father dies. He wants to repair the house of the Lord. And that is to the carpenters and the builders and the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them 
for the money that is delivered into their hands, for they deal honestly. So the king has told his secretary, go and set up uh, the money for those who are going to do the repairs at the temple. And people were already worshiping at the temple even before the repairs. That's why the, where the money came from. But they really want to make it special, look good, and really serve the purpose for which it was created. The problem is the people are seeing it more as just this beautiful thing that we can go and hang out. and It wasn't real. So in Josiah's 18th year, serious reform begins. This would be about 622 B.C., according to the book of Chronicles. In Chronicles, it, it shares a little bit more about Josiah's desires. It says that he, he wanted to remove the high places, the Asherah poles, carved Im, uh, idols, and cast images. So Josiah really got serious about seeking the Lord in the 18th year. His grandfather and his father had made such a mess, and he really wanted to restore. And this is when he also senses an obligation to repair the temple, uh, where, by the way, was an impulse... Uh, felt by Joash years earlier. In 2 Kings chapter 12, it talks about that. Uh, remember Joash, how he wanted to reform the temple? Now, what we don't see in the text is why Josiah wanted to repair the temple. All we know is that this is the beginning of a series of reforms throughout Judah. Uh, he starts with the temple, which is a very good place to begin. If you're going to bring reform to a land or to a people, you want to always begin with uh, the church. Re if you, to the degree that the church is healthy, that you have an opportunity to make a community healthy. And that's why in America there were so many churches in the foundation of this nation. Our, I, I can promise you this. If you went to the White House and you went down the hall to the Office of Education and you asked the head person over the education of the United States of America, what was the first textbook in our nation? They would have no clue. You know what it was? The Bible. That was the first textbook. Where did they meet? In churches. The church was the hub. It was the place, the center place, the centerpiece. It was the place that brought stability. It brought, it, it rec it brought loyalty. It brought strength to a community. And so Josiah is doing it right. I'm going to bring reform. And I'm going to start... I'm going to start with the temple. We're going to work there first. That's what's happening. Now, this is Old Testament. And if you really want to begin a, a spiritual reformation, you start with the building in the Old Testament. The temple was always a place where God dwelt. But we're not living in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's a shift. Now, it's not the building. That's not the house that God dwells in. The God, God dwells in your house, in your body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within, the Scripture tells us. Listen, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Here it is, verse 16. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When he says draw near to the throne of grace, 
He's not talking about a throne inside of some temple somewhere. He's talking about inside of you, where the Holy Spirit dwells. You can come to the Lord any time of the day or night, and He is ready to receive you, and you can bring your burdens and your problems, and He will show you mercy and meet your need. This is what the Scripture teaches. So God now, instead of the Old Testament being about a building that you go to and build up, now it's about you that you build up. Okay, He dwells within you. Uh, so in the Old Testament, the physical building was a temple. In the New Testament, your body is the temple where God dwells. By the way, for all of eternity when you're in heaven, the presence of God, in the presence of God, that is the temple. His throne is the temple. So there's a temple in heaven too. And you'll be able to worship Him at the temple. Now, uh, it's amazing what God will do in the Old Testament to repair or to, to, to bring reform. He repairs the building. He renews, He refreshes the, the, the place, the location. In the New Testament, he, repla- he, he refreshes us by the Holy Spirit every day. You say, well, how does He refresh me? How, do, how, does, how does God bring me closer to Him? How does He bring spiritual reformation into my life? What, what are the ways that God will do that? Well, the obvious ways is by studying His Word, by worshiping Him in song, by, by fellowship with other believers. Those are obvious. Let me give you some that we don't necessarily like to put in the same category, but they're probably even greater for reform in your life. How about trials? God uses trials to bring reform to you. Is it true or not true that when you go through a a real severe trial, you start leaning into God more than you ever have before? And you begin to see God changing you because you've leaned in. It's because of persecution persecution, suffering that comes from persecution. The more you are willing to share Christ in this day that we live, the more you will be persecuted, the more you will suffer. But it's that suffering that brings you into an identification with Jesus. You can identify with Christ because He too suffered. It's not like you're suffering in ways that Jesus never suffered. You'll never suffer in ways that He suffered. But He lets you share in that suffering. Paul talked a lot about that. These are just some of the things that happen. This is is the way it is. And all of it leads to your sanctification. The word sanctification simply means, it means to be set apart. God has saved you, and now He has sanctified you. He set you apart for His service on this earth. No longer do I live for the world. I now live for God. I belong to Christ. I am His slave. I'm set apart. I'm in the process of being sanctified, which means that I'm constantly, by the Holy Spirit, being conformed to the image of Jesus. I'm changing day by day through suffering, through trials, through Bible study, through fellowship, through the pain of life, but I'm leaning into God, and because of it, I'm growing. I'm looking more like Jesus today than I did yesterday. And then there's days that you look, you look less like Jesus. Let's just be honest, right? Two steps forward, one step back. That happens. But you're not the person you were a year ago because God's at work in you. That's wonderful. Peter gave a strong challenge to the church. 
If you want to turn there, you can. It's 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me just read a couple of the verses here, maybe three verses. I'll give you a second to turn. Go ahead. 1 Peter chapter 4. Okay. Peter, one of the apostles who walked with Jesus, who God used along with Paul and James and John and others to launch the early church. Peter's older now, and he speaks to Christians, and he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What he's saying is, If you're truly saved, you're going to suffer. But as you suffer, you lean into Jesus. As you do good, you lean into Him. So Peter's exhorting the church, the house of God. Isn't that interesting? Old Testament, it was a building. When you said house of God, you meant building. Now it means the people, the house of God, which was facing persecution. He's saying, persevere. Stay in there. Keep fighting a good fight. Win the battle. And then the believers were also struggling to separate from the former worldly sins that had once enslaved them. He saw them struggling with old sins that they used to be in bondage to when they were in the world, but God saved them. And they're still struggling. And he's reminding them that the wicked will face judgment, but the believer in Christ needs to hold themselves uh, to a higher standard than they once used to have when they were in the world. He even calls it fiery trials that they were facing, that those fiery trials that you're facing, the temptations to go back to an old life, the persecution and the suffering, the the trials that you face in life, listen, they all help refine you. They're like gold to you. Gold goes in the fire, and what happens with gold in a fire? It becomes more pure than before. The fire is good. The trials are good. The suffering is good. Don't run from it. See, God allows difficulties and trials in the lives of His people for one purpose, to purify us, just like gold. When we're persecuted for the cause of Christ, we share in His sufferings. Remember an illustration that was shared when I was just a young young man in a church service. The preacher shared about a man who was a Sunday school teacher And he was coming into the passage about the refiner's fire. And he wanted to understand what that meant. So he actually went and visited with a silversmith. And he watched the silversmith as he would take that crucible of silver. And he would have a flame. And he would hold the crucible above the flame. And he would slowly turn it. And the the Sunday school teacher asked him, "How how do you know when that process is complete? And he said, because as I turn it, I begin to see my image in it. And he said, if I put the crucible too close to the flame, it'll tarnish it. It'll it'll ruin it. 
If I don't get close enough, I'll never get the reflection of my image. Uh, that, that's you. You're in the refiner's fire. God is holding you over the fire, and he's turning you. and He wants to see his reflection in you. I'm just telling you, Christian, listen, your life is not your own any longer. You now belong to Christ. You have to allow Him to put you over the fire for His purposes. And, and what's the joy for you? You come out looking more like Jesus. <laughs> your witness goes up. People see Christ in you. So part of God's judgment upon sin is physical suffering. Not all physical suffering is due to sin. But throughout the Bible, God did allow people to suffer because of, physically because of sin. There's a reason why the disciples approached Jesus when they saw the blind man. And they asked Jesus the question, So who sinned, he or his parents, that he would be born blind? They weren't asking that in a cruel way because somehow they thought they were just making fun. No, that's the, that was the norm, was that people who suffered was because of sin. And in that case, that was not the case. Jesus told them, no, the reason he's suffering is because today God's going to manifest his glory through this man. And he healed him. Hebrews chapter 12, write it down. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. And you have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Listen now, listen to this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. God is in the business of disciplining those that He loves chastising those whom he receives. Why? Why? Why would he do that? Because he loves us. He has saved us from our sins, and now he wants us to reflect his image on this earth. So he chastens. That's how he, that's how he changes us. So the pur purpose of discipline in the house of God is to purge the sin from our lives and teach us obedience. This is the pur purpose also behind the, the reform that Josiah instituted in Judah. It's highly likely that Josiah intended to promote worship at the central sanctuary once again. And that's why the people were gathering. But they weren't coming to worship God. They were coming to worship each other. To have It's like going to Hollywood on a big, a big night, you know, the Emmys, the Oscar, whatever, and you're out there, or in New York, and everybody just kind of gathers looking good, man, put your suit on. I remember doing a, a, a prayer gathering, and we had about 1,000 people show up, and every preacher in town wanted to come. We held monthly meetings of prayer for pastors in the community for, ten, for eight, nine, ten years. And we'd get uh, 20, 25 pastors at the most. Usually more like 15 would come once a month on a Saturday morning to pray. We didn't do anything but pray. There was no music. There was no preaching. Nobody got to show their colors and try to be cool. And we just came and got on our knees and prayed. And we'd get about 15 pastors that come out. But the night that we had the big gathering and everybody in town wanted to come, every preacher in town was trying to stand up front to be seen. That's what was going on when Josiah was king. He meant it. They didn't. Verse 8, 
And Hilkiah, the, pre, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, so he, he went there to, to remember, remember why Shaphan went. He was going to tell the, all the, the workers, here's the money in the temple, use it to rebuild and repair the temple. While he's there, the, the priest, the high priest, comes to him. He says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So let's stop there for a second. So in the midst of the repair, Hilkiah discovers the law of God in a scroll and he reports it to Shaphan, who reports it to the king. This scroll would have contained the Torah, or what is better known as the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch being the first five books of the Old Testament. The first five books were books written by Moses. They encompassed the law of God for the people. Okay, So that's what he was reading to the king. It's likely that this, this was probably an official copy of the Torah that was kept next to the uh, Ark of the Covenant uh, in the temple. We, we know that it was kept there because in Deuteronomy 15, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 31, verse 25, it says, Moses commanded the Levites, who were the priestly tribe, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. In other words, that if something happens to you as you are administering the duties and the rights of the priest, the book is right there. You'll find out why, why God disciplined you. <laughs> okay? So that might be the book. They found the copy. Now, it's likely that Manasseh or Ammon had removed the book and just stuck it somewhere in the temple. And the, the high priest found it. And so uh, after reading the book, Shaphan takes the book to the king, reports... And then, in this case, the Word of God does its work on Josiah. There are a lot of, of names given for the Word of God. A lot of symbols in the Bible about the Word of God. Let me give you some. You might want to write these down. These might be helpful to you. And I'll just go ahead and give you a verse, a passage that you can turn to on your own study. So you have, you have the symbol for the Word of God and then you have the passage where it's found, okay? First of all, the Word of God is described as a mirror because it reflects the mind of God and the true condition of, of a man. And there's a big gap between God and man, amen? You'll find that in James chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Secondly, the Word of God is a seed. 1 Peter 1, 23. 1 Peter 1, 18. Matthew 13, 23. It's called a seed because once properly planted, it brings forth life. It brings forth growth. It brings forth fruit. And then thirdly, the Word of God is... A, water is used as a symbol of the Word of God. Ephesians 5, 25-27. It's called water because of its cleaning... It's quenching, it's refreshing qualities. 
If you want more passages, Psalms 42, verse 1. Psalm 119, verse 9. Proverbs 25, 25. Isaiah 55, 10. Hebrews 10, 22. Revelation 12, 22, 17. By the way, the longest book in the Bible is Psalm 119, right? Guess what it's about? All of it. The Word of God. The, the, the Bible's also described as a lamp. That's in Psalm 119, 105. In Proverbs 6, 23. In 2 Peter 1, 19. It's called a lamp because it shows us where we are right now and it shows the path where we should be going. It keeps us from falling off the path. It illuminates the path for us. And then it's also a sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. It's a sword because of its piercing ability. Nothing can cut into you like the Word of God. <laughs> you know... We'll try to get after our spouse a little bit, you know, or we get after our child or a friend, and we just kind of get on them a little bit, confront them and some stuff. You really want to confront them? Take them to the Bible. Just pull out the Scriptures. Nothing will penetrate deeper in the heart than the Word of God. Uh, it, it operates equally effective with sinners as well as with the righteous. The Bible can, can speak to anybody, and it does. Of the various armor pieces mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, there's only one offensive weapon. It's the, the Bible, the sword, the Word of God. And it's often thought of, when you think of a sword, you think of a long, a long sword. That's not the case. It's more like a small dagger uh, that from close quarters you can manipulate and move and, and do what you've got to do. That's what the word is. It's like a surgeon's scalpel. It can go deep. And it can extract the things that need to come out of you. But the word is also like precious metals. It's described like precious metals. Like gold in Psalm 19.10. Psalm 19.10. In Psalm 119.12. In Psalm 127. It's, it's described as gold. It's described as silver in Psalm 12, verse 6. It's, it's also described as food, food that nourishes you, the Word of God, right? It's, it's described as milk in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. It's described as meat in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. It's described as bread in John 6, 51. What's, what's another food that nourishes that the Bible's been described as? There's one more that I'll give you. Manna, that's a good one. What else? Okay, water. Honey. Honey. Psalm 19, verse 10. It, it, it's, it's, it's spoken of as food because it nourishes you. Let me tell you this. The Bible is the original soul food. It's the first soul food. It's referred to also as a hammer. Jeremiah 23, 29. It can, be, it can both tear down and it can build up. 
The Bible is also, well, let me give you a couple more passages. Acts 9.4 describes it as a hammer. Jude 20 describes it as a hammer. You ever been hammered by the Word? For some of us, the hammering is to soften us. For other times, it's to, ed it's to edify, it's to build up. But you've got to tear down to build up. You've got to pound it a little bit. And then it's also fire. The Word is described as fire. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Luke 24, verse 32. Jeremiah 29, Luke 24, 32. It's called fire because of its judging. It's, it's, it's justifying. It's purifying. It's consuming ability. It can consume. Well, guess what? In our text, the Word of God goes to work on Josiah. Verse 11, And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's secretary, or servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. Listen now what he says. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Josiah is really in a bad place after listening to, the, to probably Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, where God says what he'll do to Israel if they disobey, if they turn from him. And so he tears his garment. That, that's a show of complete, uh, just a breaking down and saying, God, I'm nothing and we've messed up and we are in sin and I'm repenting. He's in this state, and he sends these men out from his palace to go and, 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 and find the prophet, and let's inquire what the Lord's going to do. He's hoping that it's not too late, that God will still show mercy. That's what he's hoping. But what he's read is that if you disobey, then I'm going to bring judgment. Which, by the way, that's what happened. God already has decided to judge Israel or to uh, Israel, because Judah now is Israel, because there's no northern kingdom. So he's decided to bring judgment. But Josiah, Josiah is thinking, maybe he'll spare us. Okay? So they seek the prophet. Verse 14, So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Isaiah. You guys ought to have to try to say those words fast. They went to Huldah. She was German. Oh, no, that's Holga. I'm sorry, Holga. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the prophetess, a prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. That's interesting. So just as Hezekiah's representatives once sought Isaiah's advice, now Josiah's men approach Holda, God's representative. It's interesting that she's called a prophetess. There are six times in the Old Testament where there's a reference to a prophetess, and it speaks of four different women. Okay? Miriam, the sister of who? Miriam? Moses. That's right. Deborah. We studied Deborah recently on Mother's Day. Huldah, this woman right here, and then Noadiah. All of these prophetesses are portrayed in a very positive light in Scripture, except for, Jodadi or except for uh, Noadiah. Okay? 
So while it's far less common for there to be a female prophet, they are not just out of, uh, they're there. They're there. They're in the Bible. And God uses them. In fact, if you look at Joel, when he prophesied, what did he say? He said, son, I pray, I believe there's a day coming when your sons and your daughters will what? Prophesy. Okay? But why did they go to hold it? What's that? Okay. But why not Jeremiah? He was the prophet of the day. The prophet. She's a prophetess, but she's minor compared to him. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why. But we can make some guesses. Remember when I said to you that Jeremiah was not popular among people because he brought such a strong word against the people? So it's very likely that, oh, let's try somebody new. Let's, let's not go to him. Okay, we want to look, we're wanting God to show mercy. You go to him, it's going to be a woe, it's not going to be a blessing. That's possible. We don't really know. But we also know that she was a prophetess. She, there's no reason not to go to her. She's a woman of God. She hears from the Lord. God speaks through her. And so they went to her. Verse 15, And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord. So that would have been the king, right? Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will, and it will not be quenched. Well, that's not good. But to the king of Judah, to Josiah himself, who is pure in his heart in wanting to bring reform to, to Israel, he says, Inquire the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should have become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. In the Old Testament, we're always thinking of God as being a God of wrath and anger and judgment. Always. We don't notice from Genesis to, to Malachi, how God is also a God of mercy and grace. He's going to carry out the justice system that he, that he gave Moses. The people were evil, the people did wrong, and so he's going to judge them accordingly. He's right in doing that. But he also, at the same time, sees the heart of Josiah that is broken over the sinfulness of the people. And and. and and he shows mercy. Isn't that what Jesus did? Those who, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the Sadducees, all of them, the Herodians, they, they, they were cruel people. They were against Jesus, totally. And so he brought judgment against them. But then you've got these wicked tax collectors and these prostitutes and all these people caught up in all kinds of grievous sins before God. Some of them would fall on their face and weep and cry out to God for help, realizing that they were sinners and they couldn't save themselves. And Jesus would show them mercy. He would justify them. So hold his message back to the king as a two-pronged message. First, 
He interprets God's word for the people. And in short, it's their idolatry that's going to take them out. They're going to suffer the consequences of their idolatry. There again, that's God bringing judgment, but it's also God disciplining. Secondly, he offers a more positive word to Josiah. Because of his humility and his grief over the nation's sin, he will die in peace. He's not going to be judged. Okay? Whenever Isaiah's prediction about Babylon's ultimate victory over Judah comes true, Josiah will not have to endure that, that, that battle. He's going to die in peace. Now, interestingly, the Chronicles let us know that Josiah did die in battle. He did die in a battle, but it wasn't because of sin. It was just his time. And he became a little bit presumptuous. Uh, the, the king, uh, Nico, the king of Egypt, had come up to go against the uh, Assyrians or the Babylonians, and they came close to, to Judah. And so Josiah went out with his men to attack the king of Egypt. And the king of Egypt said to him, Why are you? I'm not coming after you, I'm going after him. Your, your God does not want you to do this. Well, he didn't know if the guy was actually got a word from God or not. So he went ahead thinking, you're going to get them, and they're going to come back to us. So he went ahead and tried to take them out. He was mortally wounded in battle, and he went back to, his, uh, to Jer Jerusalem and died. But he didn't suffer the Babylonian captivity. He, he didn't suffer that way. Therefore, verse 20, Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Now when Hezekiah was told that, that because of his wickedness, his family and the people are going to be hauled off in the future. But you won't. You're going to die before then. And he was happy. He said, that's a good word. <laughs> Self-centered, man. Just, hey, I'm not going to die, so what do I care? Josiah didn't have that attitude. God just wanted him to know, you're not going to go through that battle. But he's already expressed the great pain and sorrow in his heart for the people, for what they've done. So a different, a different approach altogether. So let's pick it up again. Oh, actually, let me just close with this. Second, turn to 2 Chronicles. We'll close with this. 2 Chronicles chapter 35. Now I'm going to pick it up at verse 22. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, from the king of, of Egypt, but dis disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. Now, it makes it sound like God did speak through that king. It doesn't say that, though. It's basically saying he didn't listen to the king when the king said that, he, that God had told him. But he doesn't know that God told him. So God's not holding that against him. And of course, then the archers shot King Josiah. King said to the servants, take me away for I am badly wounded. And they took him out of the chariot, carried him in the second chariot, brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. But look where he was at when he was fighting. Megiddo. Does that sound familiar to you? That's right. The final battle when the Lord returns will be fought on that field, the greatest battlefield on the earth. 
when Napoleon went to Megiddo, he saw the battlefield. He didn't fight on it, but he saw it. And he said, this is the greatest battlefield on the earth. And that is where God is going to go up against man who's going to try and conquer God. Hello. And God's going to take him out. Jesus is going to return. He's going to come on a white stallion. And he's going to have his sword coming out of his mouth. And he will slaughter. And it says, up to the horse's bridle will be the blood. That he'll take out man who is so arrogant, thinking that he's greater than God. The great battle of Armageddon. And Jesus will win the victory. It's already won. It's not he will win. He's already won it. Amen? You and I are saved. We are secure in Him. And our hope and our future is bright because of Christ. But oh, do we have friends and family and, and relatives and employees and employers who do not know the Lord and how they need us to do what Peter said. Be faithful to the end. Share Jesus. Suffer for Him. It's worth it. It's worth it in the end. Do it. And so let's close with prayer. Father, tonight we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, the way Your Spirit is able to take a message and then personalize it for each person in this room. The message becomes personal. It's subjective. It's different for each of us. Oh God, use Your Word tonight. Use it like a hammer for those who need a hammer. Use it like honey for those who need honey. Lord, use Your Word tonight to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Hey, finish up those desserts. Nobody wants to take desserts home.